0: This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org software.
1: Hello everyone, this is Felina for SE Radio and I'm here today with Yevgeny Suchev. Yevgeny is a founder and CEO of Makers Academy, a coding school in London in the UK. Since starting in 2013, they've trained over a 1,000 developers. And before starting Maker Academy, Evgeny worked as a software developer. Evgeny, welcome to the show.
2: Hello, thanks so much for having me here.
1: Thanks for being on the show. So today's episode is about code schools. And I want to know, what is a code school?
2: Code school is uh, a new way of uh, training complete beginners to be an employable uh, software developers. It's an alternative way into the industry. Whereas before, uh, before until a few years ago, many people either went to universities or taught themselves to code. Whereas today they can go into an immersive code school and uh, start a coding job uh, in uh, just a few months.
1: So you already said that the audience of code schools is beginning developers. But can we be a little bit more precise there? Are these people just out of high school? Or are they coming from another
2: uh, university in- study? Uh, usually uh, usually they are career switchers so they uh, they've worked for a few years in a different industry and uh, for for different reasons decided to uh, switch careers and become software developers on uh, our course at makers Academy uh, f- the average age uh, of our students is uh, just under thirty years old so they are they are already professionals in their careers uh, in their careers but they would like to add Uh, to add a coding skill uh, to their skill set
1: that's interesting the the way you say that adding code as a skill to their skill set does that mean that they're not going to be full-time developers but rather that they're going to use programming within the job that they are having right now
2: actually in most cases they do become uh, full-time developers but uh the, what our hiring partners uh, specifically like about us is that uh, th- when they hire junior developers uh, from Makers Academy, they are hiring people who are junior as a software developers, but who are not a junior as employees. So they get people with real-world experience uh, who can also uh, code. It's quite a different profile from a fresh university graduate who is uh, 21 or 22.
1: Yeah, that seems like added value. Yep. Are there different types of programming jobs that code schools teach for AMAD? Is this like only programming or can it also be database administrator or sysadmin or front end, or back end? Is it generic or specific?
2: Uh, it's uh, a bit of both really. Uh, generally uh, coding schools, uh, both in the UK and uh, uh, in Europe and in the US, uh, they try to run generic courses to give the foundation of uh, the most important things uh, required in a uh, in a software engineering uh, job, but at the same time, uh, inevitably, uh, coding schools uh, runs run uh, targeted courses for uh, software developers or uh, data science uh, for data science uh, students. Uh, but it rarely becomes very it rarely becomes very very specific, like uh, uh, database administration, for example. Uh, Because before a person is going to specialize in this, they will probably need a broader uh, foundation.
1: Yeah, so it's really like an introductory programming course or maybe a bachelor's degree that's quite generic and afterwards you would specialize. Talking about bachelor's degrees, I teach at a university, as some listeners might know, and of course I wonder personally, why do we need code schools? Students can just come to university, even if they're uh, further in life they could still take university education. How is a code school different? What gap does it fill?
2: I'm going to speak from experience because uh, personally, I learned to code at uh, at university. I've got both uh, undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in uh, computer science. The key difference is that uh, first uh, coding schools tend to get people employed, employable, much, much faster than universities. In other words, we're talking about months and uh, not years. Uh, But uh, secondly, uh, uh, coding schools are usually uh, laser focused on getting their uh, developers uh, employed. Whereas universities give uh, a much uh, broader foundation, which may be really, really useful for some jobs, uh, but not for uh, all of them. So uh, for example, when I I started working as a junior developer myself, uh, after graduating with a master's degree in uh, advanced computing, I realized that many things which I was expected to know, to know as a software developer were not taught at university at all. So I had to learn uh, on the job quite a lot. And that became an, uh, that became an uh, inspiration for starting Makers Academy. What if we design a short intensive course that is going to be laser focused on getting people employed first and uh, foremost?
1: Yeah, so it is small. It's uh, smaller in scope than university education because it's really focused on employment. And in a university, we typically also teach research skills and things that might be useful if you go into an academic career.
2: Ex- exactly. If uh, if you would like to do research in computer science, uh, there is no other. There is really no other way but uh, uh, getting undergraduate and postgraduate degrees um, at a good university. But if you would like to start building real software products and join. Uh, great uh, for great technology companies, uh, a university can be an option, but it's not uh, the only option
1: and you already said in your answer that d- another difference between universities and code schools is it's years versus months.
2: Mm-hmm. Can
1: you explain a little bit more about the practical side of code schools? Are they full time or part time
2: uh, they are they are usually uh, full time because in order to uh, Uh, In order to get someone to an employable level from scratch, you need to go through approximately 1,000 hours of practice. Uh, 1,000 hours is uh, really, uh, is is about, is going to be three or four months of full-time education and uh, maybe at least a year or more of uh, part-time education. So so most coding schools offer uh, full-time immersive programs that are trying to get someone from uh, having no experience of coding, all the way to being employable in uh, in uh, just a few months. At the same time, many coding schools also offer part-time programs. But in order to become uh, employable through, a, through part-time education, uh, the students should probably be prepared to invest uh, between one and two years of uh, their life.
1: Yeah, because if you do it full-time, then... Where would you get money? Do you need savings for this? Or are there programs where you could get paid to follow the code school? How does it work financially? Uh,
2: Financially, there are uh, different models. Uh, Some companies uh, like Makers Academy uh, charge uh, students a tuition fee uh, to study here. Uh, some companies operate as uh, non-profits, uh, they don't charge the students and they, uh, they uh, try to raise um, uh, the funds from uh, the industry. Uh, some, uh, some companies offer loans to, uh, uh, to code school students and this may work uh, quite well. Uh, sometimes uh, future employers uh, sponsor, um, uh, sponsor the students to take the course. So really I think uh, I've seen all possible combinations uh, in the industry. But uh, for the the majority of students, uh, I think uh, the majority of students are paying uh, themselves out of uh, their own savings.
1: Okay, so that's quite an investment.
2: It's quite an investment.
1: Do the code schools typically promise job security? Do you work together with companies that need developers to guarantee people they get a job after this?
2: Uh, We work very closely with a large number of employers, but um, uh, it's uh, very difficult to guarantee a job for a couple of reasons. One of them is uh, legal. If I if I understand the UK the UK law correctly, it's uh, literally illegal to promise employment uh, after after the training unless you sign the contract upfront. But uh, more, uh, but more importantly, it's uh, difficult because it not even not everything depends uh, on the code school. Uh, in order to uh, get to a successful result for the student, it needs to be a, a significant effort on the student side and a significant effort on the coding school side and. Uh, because we can only be responsible for us, it's difficult for us to guarantee the employment before we see what happens over the next few months. So what we do instead is uh, we talk about our employment statistics, about our case studies, about what happened to the previous, uh, st- previous uh, uh, students who went to uh, study with us.
1: Okay. So it's it's sort of a risk then that people
2: take. Yes.
1: Even though we know that employment is good, and it's probably not that hard to take a job. Do you have any generic statistics or maybe statistics from your own code school about how many people get a job and what type of jobs also these are?
2: Uh, The vast uh, vast majority of people who uh, want to get the job and who are looking for a job that is regularly going to the interviews, doing code tests uh, and so on. Uh, Get it within uh, the first uh, two or three months uh, after graduation. Sometimes it can be uh, a few days. Sometimes it can be a few weeks. Uh, The average uh, salary is uh, somewhere between 30 and 35 uh, thousand pounds, uh, which is pretty good uh, considering that uh, they've got no commercial experience uh, at all. Uh, And then after uh, after they start working, it uh, it increases uh, uh, every year at a pretty uh, predictable uh, rate.
1: So you mentioned before that people that go to these code schools are a little bit more mature and they might have other experience. Mm -hmm. Does that also also mean that they might get into different jobs after the code schools? For example, they start maybe as a senior developer or a project lead instead of starting as a developer because they might have experience in managing. Does that happen?
2: Uh, It uh, does occasionally happen, but uh, it's uh, not the majority of cases. However, we've seen uh, we've seen enough situations when somebody with a background of finance, for example, uh, joins a fintech company as a junior developer and then uh, leverages their experience in finance as well as their skills as a developer to build a product. Usually, this is a usually this is a winning combination for uh, the employer if they can get a developer who also understands what they are doing as a business. Uh, it can be really really powerful.
1: Okay, that that sounds really good, where you can make a connection between what you learn in the code school and the experience that you already bring from before.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's what we're trying to do uh, in, uh, in every case, yes.
1: So let's zoom into what you actually teach in the code schools. As I said, I'm an educator myself here. So I'm really curious. We already covered the difference between... A code school and a university where a code school is more practical but what does that mean can you give a brief overview of the type of courses that you teach
2: so we actually teach just one course so we've got the one course one curriculum that is designed to help uh, a complete beginner to become an employable uh, software developer so we focus on the uh, on the very basics, on the foundation of how to build uh, good software in principle. We use a specific set of technologies, uh, specifically uh, Ruby and JavaScript uh, on the course, but uh, we uh, care more about how they approach uh, software development rather than the very specific uh, technical details of um, uh, any specific technology. The reason for this is because is that uh, most of our hiring partners uh, use a uh, use uh, technologies different from uh, the ones that we are using uh, for, uh, in our curriculum. We work with literally with hundreds of companies and they use everything from Java to Ruby to Scala to Haskell to uh, pure javascript uh, really uh, we've seen uh, we 've seen pretty much all kinds of requirements and it's uh, it would be very difficult if not impossible to uh, train our developers to be experts in these specific, uh, in this specific t- uh, tech stacks. So instead, we're trying to make sure that they are uh, well-rounded uh, software developers who can pick up a new technology quickly, who understand the basics and who can hit the ground running fairly quickly.
1: So you already mentioned the programming language that you use, Ruby and JavaScript. What other technologies do you teach in terms of uh, maybe databases or ORM systems?
2: So in terms of databases, uh, we use uh, we usually use uh, Postgres, uh, Mongo, and uh, the MySQL. But this is uh, not the important point. Uh, we we are not trying to push them in the direction of a specific technology. We are helping them to become. Uh, to become high-quality junior developers. So by the end of the course, when they get to building their final projects, they are working on a wide range of technologies and many of them are not even mentioned in the curriculum. So by the end of the the course, some of the students may be building uh, websites. Some of them will be building mobile applications. Some of them will be building virtual reality games. Some of them will be doing uh, machine learning projects. Uh, Somebody will uh, build a simple search engine. And instead of trying to teach them how to do each of these things, we're trying to help them how to learn in the most efficient way and how to build high-quality software. And whether the software is going to be an e-commerce website or a virtual reality project is less important to us.
1: That's an interesting thing you say there. You say you help them learn. You, You teach them to learn. How do you teach people to learn? That's a different skill from programming.
2: That's uh, n- actually no, 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 not it's this. It's a very, it's a very, very closely related skill, uh, because programming is a job of a programmer is ultimately about learning, uh, because software is uh, can be easily reused. Uh, every time uh, you build a new software product, you are uh, really learning how to do something new, something that you haven't done before. If if it was done before, it can be reused. So uh, the job of a software developer to a very large extent consists of learning how to do new things. Technologies change all the time. Uh, the new languages, new frameworks uh, are introduced. It really changes significantly. So one of the most important skill we can give to our developers is how to learn efficiently, how to get around the roadblocks, how to work uh, how to work as a, uh, as a team, how to... Identify your, uh, the most efficient uh, the learning styles. How to get uh, through emotional roadblocks? Uh, we uh, we focus on these. We focus on these things just because in our experience they are so much more important. Uh, specific details, more specific technologies.
1: And this is interesting. This leads to another question that I had is is who are your teachers? Because if you teach people about collaboration and about learning. Probably programmers are not equipped to teach all those things. Who teaches at code schools?
2: Uh, th- actually, this is uh, you're hinting at one of the biggest challenges for every single code school I know. In order to teach software develop- development, uh, the faculty staff need uh, need to be uh, experienced software developers themselves. Uh, this is uh, it's one of also it's one of the ways in which we are different from universities. Uh, everyone on our coaching team uh, has has recent and relevant uh, software development uh, experience it's really really important but at the same time and this is really difficult at the same time they also need to have skills well teaching skills essentially they need to be they need to know how to help others to learn efficiently and people like this are incredibly rare and incredibly uh, incredibly uh, difficult to find
1: but not incredible enough apparently because there are code schools and they're running well so people do manage to find these people
2: do manage to find them but it's uh, it's one of the biggest challenges for uh every code school i know nobody has ever said that it's easy to find uh, uh, to find people to uh to run a code school
1: And do the teachers typically work full time for the code school? Or is this something they do for a few months and then they go back to a programming job because you said something interesting. They all have recent programming skills, so you can only use them, quote unquote, use for a little bit because in five years their experience might be irrelevant. maybe in five months their experience would be irrelevant. Uh,
2: it's act- in actually something in between. I would say that um, maybe between two and three years is the sweet spot. It's, uh, uh, and it's one of the challenges for most uh, coding schools. If uh, some, if someone has been out of the profession for or out of the full-time coding for more than two or three years, the question is, are they still qualified to teach others how to be uh, good software developers? So in, uh, so as far, as far as I can tell, uh, most, uh, most, people, uh, most people who help others to learn, do it full time, do an amazing job. But in most cases, uh, after two or three years, uh, start to consider other options, and this is uh, perfectly reasonable.
1: Yes, yeah, so they sort of naturally after a while start doing something else. So there's a, a natural turnover in the people that teach.
2: Uh, yes, and uh, f- at the uh, Makers Academy, for example, uh, our uh, internal engineering team is uh, composed uh, uh, almost exclusively uh, out of uh, ex-coaches uh, uh, after they've uh, been teaching for a, of, uh, for a couple of years and then they moved on to do engineering, uh, uh, engineering full-time again.
1: Oh, that's nice. It's a nice uh, variety of work, I guess. A nice rhythm of teaching a little bit and then learning and then giving back again. So, I'm wondering also about, do you teach a little bit of theory? Because, of course, you're you're not going to deliver full-time academics, but more and more of programming is also reliant on some theory. If you want to do functional programming, it's probably handy, practically, if you know a little bit of lambda calculus. and um re- reactive systems are not that easy conceptually do you cover this at all or is that just too little time for that
2: uh we do but not in a uh we do but uh it's uh, some of it is uh compulsory and expected and some of it uh is not so for example you mentioned uh functional programming uh one of the uh one of the coaches on our team is an expert in uh, well has has a really good some really good experience with uh, functional uh, programming uh, at times uh, she does del- uh, she, uh, she does deliver uh, various sp- uh, specific uh, workshops uh, focused on uh, functional programming to uh, the students uh, if it's uh, uh, relevant uh, to them and if it's appropriate for uh, for uh, uh, their development but at the same time it's not something that we would uh, force all students to uh, all students to learn Uh, 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 at every single uh, class. So in in other words, there is considerable flexibility in how our curriculum uh, is applied. Uh, Sometimes uh, we introduce the elements of functional functional programming, sometimes we add some elements of uh, hardware development, uh, sometimes uh, virtual reality and so on. Uh, So there there is quite a bit of flexibility
1: let's talk about that a little bit more the day-to-day of a code school how does that work like yeah imagine a full-time program students come in for a few months what do they have do they have lectures how big are the classrooms do they do project work tell me more about the experience
2: okay so the experience is uh about 90 of 90 of the time they spend at the code school uh or well, at least at makers academy uh consists of actually writing software so, uh, we, uh, we don't uh, give them lectures as such, we uh, give them challenges to uh, overcome and tasks to complete and when they uh, hit roadblocks or, uh, uh, or start asking interesting questions, we organize workshops to uh, answer them and then uh, push them towards uh, the next uh, challenge. So we're t- in other words, we're trying to uh, simulate a real work environment uh, as much as possible we are constantly pushing them to be uh, one step ahead of uh, what they are comfortable with uh, at this given moment. And this, and this is why our curriculum is, uh, uh, is uh, uh, flexible. Sometimes it's possible to go faster, sometimes it's necessary to uh, go a little bit slower, and sometimes uh, a class can go a little bit uh, sideways.
1: So you mentioned that the students get challenges and tasks. Can you give a concrete example of a challenge? Is that very big, like build a web app, or is it really small, like try binary search?
2: It it uh, it depends on uh, it depends on the stage of uh, uh, in the course. in uh, In the first week, it can be uh, something as simple as build for two classes that interact in a specific uh, in a specific way and make sure there is test coverage for uh, both of them. So that's something fairly simple and uh, isolated. On, uh, at the more advanced stage of the course, it can be something more difficult. Uh, for example, uh, let's build uh, a website which has a, uh, a user account management functionality. Basically, you can log in, log out, uh, change your password, recover it by email, and so on. By doing this, the students will inevitably need to learn about uh, how to handle uh, the passwords, how to uh, store them, what is, uh, what's the difference between uh, encryption and uh, hashing, for example, and so on. So they need to understand and research uh, these topics in order to get to a successful uh, implementation. But our job is to keep pushing them in the right direction, keep asking the right questions and keep giving uh, helpful uh, instructions.
1: Interesting. And, and those challenges, the way you build them up, like you start with a small exercise and then it gets bigger. Is this something you share? Is this something that you can do on GitHub or you can find? Or is that course material part of your unique proposition and you want to keep that IP closed?
2: Uh, right now, our course materials are uh, closed and we are not publishing them. But uh, at the same time, I'm I wouldn't say that it's uh, the mostly closely guarded secret. It's uh, probably if you email me after the show and, and ask me to uh, give you access to uh, our curriculum, I'll be happy to.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm personally interested, of course, but I'm also interested in understanding where the unique value of a code school is. Do you think that's in the challenges and the course material it's probably more about the environment and the coaches and the fact that they're all working on stuff together.
2: Uh, yes, uh, so the, uh, the value proposition is uh, not the curriculum. The curriculum is relatively, the curriculum, the curriculum is, is the easy bit. Uh, what makes uh, coding school special is uh, the environment. Uh, learning learning full time in an immersive environment in uh, teams of uh, other people on the same journey with the same goal is, is an incredible experience. If uh, when it's done uh, in the uh, when all when this learning is facilitated by uh, skilled um, uh, skilled coaches uh, and software engineers who can uh, make sure that the learning process is as efficient as possible, uh, it becomes uh, even more useful. And uh, finally, the last uh, uh, the last value proposition is uh, uh, the support of our career team. Once our developers uh, graduate from uh, Maker's Academy, we work uh, really really hard to help them to help them sign their first contract. In other words, our, our work doesn't stop until, uh, until they get employed.
1: Nice. Even though, as you mentioned before, there's not a promise, you definitely help them get landed their first job. Uh,
2: there is no promise, but uh, the bus- our business model relies on uh, the revenues from both students and our hiring partners. So when they do get employed, uh, in most cases, we, uh, are, uh, we are paid uh, a placement fee for this. And uh, it's a, a significant uh, part of our revenue. So, as a, as a business, we are uh, very strongly incentivized to uh, keep our developers uh, employable.
1: Yeah, and no, also I guess that means that the tuition can be relatively low because you have another source of income as well from the people that hire your students.
2: Uh, true, uh, true. Although uh, we are, although the, our tuition fees are still not nearly as low as uh, we would like them to uh, to be
1: yeah I understand so what must I imagine for the group size so I'm thinking of a a class is that one team or is that a hundred people or a thousand people how does that work
2: Uh, we run uh, we run uh, classes of up to uh, 24 people so in uh, in our experience uh, it's uh, the optimal size which is neither too small nor uh, too big uh, so uh, right now on our campus, there are three parallel classes of uh, uh, up to 24 people each.
1: Uh, 24 is, is a pretty big number. So that's bigger than just one team. If they yep. do they yes. build software collaboratively where, with all of them, where they play the roles of different teams in one company?
2: Uh, nope, they, uh, I don't think they ever work in teams larger than uh, five or six people. And usually it's probably uh, four or five.
1: Yeah, sure, but you could still have, like you have in a company, multiple teams that still interact, but you only have projects that are just for smaller groups.
2: Uh, yes, uh, we uh, yes, I don't think we ever tried to build uh, to build a project that would uh, involve coordinating uh, over twenty people. It would be possible, but uh, uh, it also would be pretty challenging as well.
1: Yeah, it might be chaotic. And how, how, with twenty-four people, there are going to be differences in skill quite soon and significantly, how do you deal with that? If there are students that pick it up quick enough for them to know a lot, or if there are students that can't really follow, they don't reach the level to participate in the exercise, how do you deal with that?
2: Uh, It all starts with uh, uh, selecting uh, selecting the students uh, really, really carefully. Uh, We screen our applicants uh, to the best of our ability because it's really, really uh, important. Any coding, any good coding schools starts with uh, a good selection of uh, applicants. So we're trying to make sure that uh, when they start, they are already at a similar level in terms of uh, abilities. Uh, Of course, we do see uh, different rates of progress uh, on the course, but usually it doesn't cause uh, um, too many problems. Uh, Very occasionally. if uh, uh, very occasionally, if a student is uh, struggling too much, uh, we may ask them to uh, leave the course. Uh, but uh, it's more of an exception rather than a rule. We're trying to do our best to to attract the right candidates on the course and uh, do the uh, do the selection, uh, do the screening before they start.
1: Can you talk about the screening a little bit more? Because we're talking about beginning programmers. This is not going to be whiteboards to a hash table live here because they don't know programming how do you know if they can learn programming Uh,
2: we are I think having interviewed uh, several thousand students over the years we uh, developed we developed a pretty good understanding of uh, what may what uh, kind of candidates are most likely to to become successful software developers so we are looking at uh, their uh, ability to learn we are looking at uh, their mental models of uh, themselves and uh, uh, their learning in uh, you're probably you must be familiar with an um, with the open mindset and fixed mindset uh, models
1: yeah well i am but maybe not all our listeners are so could you give a little bit of background here
2: uh, in short in in one uh, in uh, in a sentence if a person believes that they can learn new things they uh, can change they if they if uh, they encounter an obstacle, they can get around it and everything is ultimately within their control and they can change what they do and how uh, they react to it and so on. They're likely to be uh, more uh, successful than uh, people who fundamentally believe that uh, what they what they' are able to do is uh, fixed, limited, and determined by. Outside the uh, forces, forces that they don't control. So it's, uh, it's. I'm grossly oversimplifying it, uh, of course. But uh, in, uh, in in short, people who believe in themselves, people who are resourceful about uh, learning and achieving their goals, are just more likely to be uh, to be successful. So when we interview students, we ask them. Uh, what they've been uh, what they've been doing to learn coding up until now. Uh, they are trying to get out of Maker's Academy. Why they applied to Maker's Academy as opposed to many uh, other options. Uh, what are the key uh, challenges uh, they think they are going to encounter when uh, learning how to code? Uh, we go through a number of practical exercises, trying to push them to the limit of their knowledge and see how they deal with the uncertainty. So, in other words, we are looking not for Uh, We're looking not for specific knowledge because really it doesn't matter. We're looking for their behavior and their attitude and their set of assumptions about themselves and their world as an indication that they are going to be uh, successful on the course. It's not bulletproof, but having seen a few thousand students, uh, I have a lot of confidence in uh, our screening model.
1: It's it's of course really different from the way most tech companies interview now where they really focus on Programming capabilities and not so much, I think, on these type of things. Or do you know of other companies do they also use these type of interview questions?
2: Well, some, some of them do. I think more and more companies realize that uh, uh, asking questions about uh, specific uh, topics doesn't always work well. or rather, it works well if you need a very specific area of um, or if you need a very specific skill set. If you need an expert in a specific technology for a specific problem, yes, of course, you are going to ask questions about that technology. But with junior developers, the situation is different. You, you don't want them to know uh, the specifics of uh, the latest framework. You want them to be able to learn, to collaborate, to communicate, to uh, not to be afraid of uh, the unknown, to uh, be resourceful, to be proactive, to be inventive. Uh, for every single day in the workplace. In other words, uh, when you're hiring junior developers, you are more interested in, you should be more interested in behavior and attitude uh, rather than the specific details of uh, their technical skills. And more and more companies are uh, realizing this, yes.
1: So, one more question about selection. Do you do anything to ensure diversity in the candidates you get? Because one of the things you said is, in the selection we want people that are resourceful, but also people that uh, have, have confidence. And of course, we might not observe these type of character traits neutrally. There's quite some research that if women for example are seem very confident then they might be seen as too strong whereas if men show confidence then this is a, an added value is there anything you do to ensure diversity
2: uh, we do and we do, we do quite a lot uh, except one thing uh, one thing that we've never done uh, with diversity is we never had any kinds of uh, quotas uh, so we've worked uh, pretty hard over the years to make sure that uh, our course is, uh, has an uh, equal representation of uh, uh, male and female students, for example. But we never uh, screen students based on uh, these attributes. So uh, what we've done instead is uh, we've tweaked our marketing materials to send the message that uh, coding is for everyone and not just for uh, young white male stereotypical uh, developers. Uh, we've uh, uh, from uh, from our first year we've uh, uh, we offered a discount for uh, uh, for female applicants but just to just to encourage more female uh, students to apply with uh, we are supporting various um, uh, minority groups and meetups who, uh, who are who are helping the women in tech or the, uh, black and Asian students to learn to code so we are uh, trying to do a lot of work indirectly to to make sure that as many people as possible across all kinds of backgrounds realize that coding could be for them. It's a viable career, whether you are 20, 30, or 40, uh, whether uh, you've got a university, uh, university education or not. Basically, regardless of what your background is, you can learn to code. And uh, maybe you, if, it so- if it sounds appealing, then maybe you should try.
1: Cool, and as, have these things worked for you? Do you? Attain 50-50 percent. It
2: took us. It took us. It took us quite a lot of work. But in November, November last year was uh, the first time when we achieved a 50-50 split between our male and female students in our uh, f- uh, at makers Academy. It took a while. Yes, it. it uh, for the first few years, uh, most of the students, uh, most of the applicants were male, and therefore most of the uh, students were male, and it it took quite a lot of uh, work to. Uh, uh, change that trend and to learn how to attract uh, uh, more diverse candidates
1: cool So I want to talk a little bit more about the impact that code schools have on the world around us What do you think the biggest way the biggest impact is that code schools have?
2: I think the biggest uh, uh, the biggest thing is coding school <laughs> uh, help uh, a lot of people to learn to code and I mean those people who wouldn't, become, who wouldn't have become developers otherwise. Uh, there, are, uh, there, uh, there is a great demand for software developers, and there is a very large number of people who could become software developers. But realistically, uh, very few people are going to take a, by three or four years out of their career uh, when they are 25 or 30 in order to go back to university. And coding schools fill this gap by helping uh, a very diverse group of people to learn software development. Uh, it uh, uh, Coding schools uh, often uh, attract more diverse uh, group of uh, students. There are some coding schools uh, in the States, for example. I'm thinking of uh, Hackbright uh, Academy, uh, that uh, only work with uh, uh, women, uh, which helps make the entire industry more diverse. There are coding schools like uh, Founders and Coders in, uh, in London, UK, for example, who uh, provide free tuition, and this helps to make the industry more diverse because people who wouldn't be able to afford to pay for the tuition to learn to code. So it's, uh, in, in short, it does make uh, the industry uh, quite more diverse and I'm really, really happy to see it happening.
1: That sounds really good. I think universities could learn a little bit from how you get those diverse candidates. But I'm still curious, why are code schools popular now? Because there's been a demand for programmers for five years, 10 years, maybe 40 years. Why do we see th- those code schools happening now rather than a decade ago?
2: Uh, it's a good question. So I think f- it probably uh, was possible a decade ago. It's just that uh, not many people uh, tried. Uh, five years ago, the f- uh, five, five years ago uh, Dev Bootcamp, a uh, coding school in the U.S., launched their program, and that and that was the event which. Uh, started the which kick the industry uh, many people realized that first you can learn to code in uh, just a few months and uh, get a job it was probably uh, possible before but uh, if you asked most people in 2007 I imagine most people would have said that hey it's impossible it's just impossible to learn to code in just a few months you need to go to university you need to go to uh, get a university degree and uh, not many people, not many people, challenged the, uh, that assumption back then.
1: Can you contribute this to one person or one code school? Is there were there people that really advocated this, or is it more just a movement? Uh, I advocate?
2: think the very first, the very first people uh, were definitely Dev Bootcamp uh, in the States. Uh, they started in uh, 2012, and uh, they've done a really, really good job. Uh, over the last uh, few years, uh, essentially Dev Bootcamp was a trail uh, was a trailblazer in uh, in this space, and they gave rise uh, to uh, this uh, industry, which is still very young, but it didn't exist five years ago.
1: How is Dev Bootcamp doing now? Are they still around?
2: Uh, unfortunately, uh, a couple of weeks ago, they announced they would close in December. So uh, much to my regret, uh, because they are really one of the best players out there, uh, much to my regret, uh, they said that they uh, weren't able to find a sustainable business model. And uh, therefore, they are going to close operation uh, by Christmas. It's a real shame.
1: Do you understand that do you see that lots of code schools are searching for the right business model?
2: Uh it's uh yes unfortunately uh dev bootcamp is not the only uh, is not the uh, is not the only company that uh, came to this conclusion. Uh, there are uh there are others uh, they uh in they yet for example who also announced that they would uh uh, st- uh stop uh, uh operating. Uh, and uh, another high profile company galvanize uh, just announced that, that they will uh, downsize and uh, um, let go of approximately eleven percent of uh, their workforce. so the industry as a whole is actually uh, struggling to find a sustainable business model in this space uh, it's uh, it may seem uh, it may seem like uh, it's it's a great it may seem like it's a great business to charge students uh, 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 eight ten or twelve thousand dollars to uh, learn to code but unfortunately when you look at the, the economics of coding schools uh, most of them find it uh, really difficult to uh, to stay successful
1: we understand why is because it doesn't seem too expensive you need a location you need coaches uh it doesn't
2: uh, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem too expensive but the supply of people uh, the supply of people who are able to afford uh, a coding school is actually not uh, not huge. As it's, it, this market is there, but it's not uh, limitless, and uh, and there is uh, only so much you can charge to uh, you can charge to a uh, to a private individual. So really, we're talking about maybe a, a ten to a f- something around ten thousand uh, dollars or uh, or pounds. Co- uh, most coding schools uh, also don't have access to uh, uh, student loans, uh, either in the UK or in the US, um, meaning that most people are paying uh, out of uh, their own pocket or out of uh, their savings, uh, which is uh, a different situation from, let's say, uh, most undergraduate students. Another problem, uh, systemic problem in the industry, is that it's very, it has a very low barrier for entry, meaning that uh, when Dev Bootcamp... Started operating in 2012. Uh, dozens of other companies started operating just uh, a year or two later. So now there are probably close to a hundred of, code, of uh, coding schools in the U.S. alone, and uh, in and even in London. When we started in 2013, uh, I think we were uh, the first one in February 2013. Uh, today there is uh, half a dozen, and. Uh, all of us are competing for the same market of uh, of uh, people who would like to switch their careers. Uh, unfortunately, from a business from a business perspective, it's uh, uh, it can be a, it can be a difficult case as uh, uh, Dev Bootcamp uh, unfortunately found out.
1: Yeah. So, is there any any way out of this? Do you see? Do you think that at one point maybe companies will start to fund code schools because? they're in need of developers and they could buy a few seats that you can fill with people for free. Where is mm-hmm. this going?
2: That's pretty much where the industry is uh, going. More and more uh, coding schools, uh, ourselves uh, included. included. Uh, we are working on uh, find, uh, finding ways to uh, shift our revenue to, uh, to the uh, corporate side. Because uh, you're, absolut- you're absolutely right. The answer is in one form uh, or another, is to charge uh, employers for the uh, for the training.
1: And is this working? Do you think that will be the sustainable business model that all the code schools are looking for? Uh, at
2: least uh, uh, some of at least some of them. It's uh, this model is uh, successful to various to various degrees. So let's let's put it this way: some coding schools are more successful than others in in making it work. But it's still very early days, and it's still uh, too early to it's still too early to uh, say what exactly is going to be the winning combination. I've seen uh, I've seen quite a few uh, quite a few different uh, ways in which uh, uh, coding schools or training providers in general are trying to are trying to uh, structure their business models, and it's just uh, too early to call the winner uh, yet.
1: So, so, what are some of the other ways that uh, funding is structured? Uh, it's
2: uh, it's possible to uh, it's possible to charge uh, uh, to charge the employer for training, uh, to, for training their existing staff, or to for training uh, them for a specific uh, project or uh, a set of technologies. It's possible to uh, some coding schools are partnering with. Um, uh, corporates to uh, sponsor people on the course. Uh, sometimes it's done for specific students. Sometimes it's done for as a general scholarship for open to uh, all applicants. Uh, sometimes uh, coding schools are trying to raise funds from the industry, uh, not to train any specific individual, but to invest into into the education of the next generation of developers. Uh, so. Really, I think I've seen all kinds of combinations, all, all, kinds, of, uh, all kinds of different uh, variations of, um, of business models that uh, the coding schools are trying, to, uh, are trying to implement.
1: Okay, interesting. And then you said a few times before that you don't really know where it's going. We still have to see what, what a good model is. There's one more thing I want to reflect on a little bit, and that's the difference between online and offline education. Because, of course, one of the other competitors of code schools are online programs. You have edx.org, um, Coursera, where there are lots and lots of programming courses as well. Is this something you see as a threat, or is it more something you see as an opportunity because you can use those free coursewares in your education as well?
2: Uh, it's definitely an opportunity. Uh, we are very, very happy uh, using existing uh, online materials and online courses to. Uh, help our students to prepare for, uh, for the studying at Makers Academy. So, uh, when, uh, so when people apply to the, uh, apply to Makers Academy, uh, I think one of the very first thing we will st- the very first links we will send them is uh, a link to uh, Code Academy, for example. It's, uh, it's also interesting that, that there are different kinds of uh, online training options out there. There are uh, courses like um, uh, edX or Coursera for example and there are immersive full-time courses uh, delivered online uh, which are very similar to offline coding schools but done uh, completely online. That can work uh, really well as well.
1: So do you think the future of education is this combination of online and offline?
2: Uh, I think it's too early to tell. Uh, we've been experimenting with uh, our own online, uh, own online courses over the last uh, uh, two and a half years. And uh, we learned that uh, some aspects of online education can be really uh, really successful and really promising. And uh, in, other, uh, in other respects, it can be uh, much more uh, challenging. So for example, uh, when, we, uh, when we're running our own, our own online course, also full-time immersive, uh, 12 weeks and so on. Uh, we learned that the quality of the training, the quality of developers, is exactly the same as uh, what we're as uh, our offline course. But the challenge that uh, the challenge that we've seen is that it's much more difficult to help our uh, uh, remote students to uh, find employment afterwards, because uh, unlike unlike offline students, they tend to be outside London. In other words, if we get uh, uh, one developer in Paris, one in Berlin, one in Madrid, one in uh, Amsterdam, and uh, one in uh, Glasgow, it's much more difficult for us to help them find uh, great uh, jobs uh, locally. Whereas in London, because our, our network of hiring partners is so concentrated around London, it's, uh, it's much more uh, doable.
1: And what do you so? You named that you said there are pros and cons, and one clear downside is that you can't really use your local network for employment. But what would be one of the upsides you see of a combination of online and offline? Uh,
2: If you are doing it uh, purely online, it's going to be significantly cheaper. It's uh, for studying studying in London uh, is uh, is uh, much more expensive. So right now we are charging eight thousand pounds for uh, our uh, uh, on-site course in London. And uh, when we were running our remote course, uh, we priced it at uh, uh, £4,000, basically half price. Uh, And if you factor the living costs into account, it becomes uh, even cheaper. Uh, So one one, uh, significant advantage of uh, remote courses is that they can be a a real uh, money saver.
1: Are you still running the online program or are you doing just offline? Uh,
2: Unfortunately, we uh, decided to uh, close our uh, online program uh, earlier this year. So our last online class is going to uh, graduate uh, graduate next month, and that will be the last one uh, for now.
1: And this is because of the employment perspective. That's the issue there.
2: It's one of the uh, one of the main reasons. Yes, our entire company revolves around getting our students into jobs, and uh, helping our uh, uh, and helping our students uh, get employed at great technology companies is so much easier when. Students and companies are physically located in the same uh, in the same market. Uh, there, there is uh, there was something else that we learned uh, as well. Uh, students uh, or applicants tend to tend to uh, prefer uh, the offline experience uh, because they perceive it as uh, superior, even if uh, even if uh, the employment statistics are uh, similar. Basically, uh, even if they are going to to learn exactly the same thing they would rather be on campus uh, f- talking face-to-face to the coaches and other students instead of sitting in their bedroom for, uh, for three months uh, staring at the screen for uh, 12 hours a day.
1: Yes, yeah, so even though it's more expensive, the experience of the immersion and the group work in the same place, yeah, I mean, we all understand that that is something that definitely adds value.
2: Absolutely. So it's... Uh, um it's something that we've found uh, uh, over the last uh, two and a half years so when we've been trying to run an uh, online course.
1: It's so sad because it seems like such a nice solution to a problem where you could do it cheaper, but I totally understand that it's not the same as doing it,
2: uh, it with a... Uh, yes, it's not the same and speaking of making it cheaper, uh, I, uh, we're trying to figure a way how to make it cheaper uh, using and uh, uh, doing it uh, on-site in London. Uh, I don't, I don't have an answer to this uh, yet, but it's uh, one of the problems we're trying to solve. Yes.
1: Okay, you should definitely keep us posted, of course, on all the great challenges. And we're coming to the end of this episode anyway. So, it, where can we read more about you and about your specific Code School?
2: The first thing is, uh, please check out our website. It's makersacademy.com, uh, and you can also find us on our Twitter at makersacademy. Uh, There is a blog, uh, blog blog.makersacademy.com, and uh, uh, you'll also find us on uh, YouTube. Uh, We've got uh, hundreds of videos showing all aspects of of, uh, our course. So if you'd like to see what it looks like in real life, please uh, search Makers Academy on uh, YouTube.
1: Yeah, we will make sure that there's a link to your YouTube in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to add where we can follow you or something I forgot to ask about?
2: Probably just one last thing. If I... If, you're, if you've been listening to this conversation for the last hour and you're still skeptical that it's possible to get to an uh, employable level in just a few months, please go to our website and check out some of our case studies. I've seen complete beginners to go from no knowledge of web development to great careers at companies like BBC Financial Times, uh, this uh, Sky News Corporation, The Economist, and hundreds of others. And I'm really, really proud of uh, the work we do.
1: Cool. We'll make sure that we add a link to those cases also in the show notes. So people that are still skeptical should totally check them out and see.
2: Thank you. All
1: right. Thanks for being on the show. It was really interesting. And we will make sure to put everything in the notes.
2: Thank you so much. Goodbye.
0: Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at sc radionet This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.